On this week's episode, we're talking high IQs and mommy issues. Welcome to Monsters of the Midwest. All right. I am super excited this week. Uh, we have a guest here today. Um, and we're also going to do a deep dive in my into my favorite serial killer, Edmund Kemper III. I'm sure you guys have heard about him. Mm-hmm. He's, he's not really super in our demographic, but um, that's okay. He's the exception. Um, but we've all heard his story. Uh, we've seen it portrayed on every show possible on different networks. Um, he was on Mindhunter, portrayed on Mindhunter. Uh, he's very, very hard to miss. If you don't know who he is, you've at least seen pictures uh, because he's six foot nine, real big guy with glasses, kind of awkward, goofy looking. Um, but whether it's his, his appearance or his story that grabs your attention, he definitely does just that. But what I want to discuss is his childhood and how that made a affecting him as not only a teen, but as an adult. We're going to discuss the classic case of nature versus nurture. We're going to go down some rabbit holes. And with us to do that is Kate. So say hello. (laughs) Hello. Uh, Yeah, I'm Kate. My show is called Ignorance Was Bliss. And I'm like a geriatric podcaster by this point. I have... (laughs) uh four and a half years and 400 and something something episodes 420 something like that a lot real og yeah it's ridiculous and so (laughs) thanks for putting up with me and letting me come play yeah we are excited um to have you here i've went through about oh four or five mental breakdowns being nervous i was like oh my gosh what if I tell this stuff wrong? She's going to rip me apart, blah, 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 because I'm big into <laughs> yep. I don't research You're... things on my own show. Like, I just make shit up. It's good. It's all good. We love a good yeah. making shit up. Right. And I love a good research, too. So, you know, there's, there's both uh, ends of the spectrum there. But yeah. um, be- before we get into the down dirty discussion, I want to talk about uh, how IQ plays a huge part in the greater scheme of things at least I think so um in this puzzle that we call Edmund Kemper so I'm going to talk about his backstory a little bit uh the nitty-gritty so Edmund Kemper III was born on December 18th in 1948 he was the middle child of Eddie Jr. and Clarnell Elizabeth Kemper and she is just something fucking else we're going to talk about her too uh (laughs) so Ed Jr. was a World War II vet, and he was actually sent to go test nuclear bombs and weapons um, before he returned back from being in the military. And then he came back to be an electrician with his family. So, you know, glamorous lifestyle. Uh, (laughs) Right, right. Uh, Clarnell, however, is she's a real piece of fucking work. She bitched at uh, her husband, Eddie Jr., about his profession and his intelligence level, how he was just less than not good enough. It was just nitpick this, that, you know? So he was like out literally almost killing himself every day or sacrificing his life to, you know, for the country, whatever. And then he went and tested on nuclear bombs and weapons and then came home and had to deal with this shit. Are you fucking kidding me? 
Ugh, no thanks. Um, <laughs> so I, I think he said it best um, on his thoughts on his then wife. So I'm going to read one of his quotes that he's famous for saying. Suicide missions in wartime and all the atomic bomb testing were nothing compared to living with Clarnell. Wow. Uh, she, yeah. She affected me worse than 396 days and nights of fighting in the front end. So she, she's a party. She's a party. Um, Damn. Right. So here's a, I mean, we got to keep balance. So I found a quote from Clarnell about Eddie Jr., her uh, husband at the time. I was very grateful when I bore a guy. So the guy that she's talking about is Eddie Kemper, like the one we're here to talk about. Um, So anyways, I was very grateful when I bore a guy to have never been given a son. I've always felt super strongly about it, but their father never wanted any of them in a planned sense. Anyways, he always felt he couldn't afford children and here they are today and still he can't afford it. Love is actually quite inexpensive. So she's a little butthurt too, I guess. I don't know. Wow. I can't believe that after all of that, him going to war and doing all that shit and he comes home and she's like, you're an asshole that doesn't make shit and doesn't provide for us. It's terrible. And I'm sorry. I mean, maybe I'm like ignorant to fact, don't electricians make a lot of fucking money? (laughs) I mean, isn't that a pretty like solid, you know, career? I thought, I, I don't know. The ones at the plant, the ones at the plant that I work at do make quite a decent salary. I mean, yeah, more than I do. Right. So, um, Cornell, she was labeled as a violent alcoholic who constantly belittled and humiliated Ed and Ed Jr. Or I'm sorry, Ed Jr. and the third, her husband and her kid. So multiple sources claimed that her whole family suffered from her just belittling and and talking down to and just really throwing all of her negative energy, all of her burdens onto her kids and her husband. And it was just like a constant everyday thing. Like people are having Cheerios for breakfast and they're having fucking Clarnell's emotions, I guess. Um, So it sounds really fun. Um, It sounds like shit. I know. And then she also... Uh, went and was tested a couple of times and got diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. So I can see that. that. Uh, she would pay a lot of attention to her girls. She loved her girls. She would buy them new clothes. She would give them, you know, new dolls, things to play with. Uh, you know, she was just very, very attentive to them, to their emotional needs, everything. Like it was great, you know, at least on that side of her. But then when sure. it came to Eddie, it was not good. Not at all. And this didn't start to really get bad until the couple separated in 1957. Uh, Carnell just, she was so disgusted at the fact that her son looked like her ex-husband. And, you know, I mean, if they were together, that would be a phenomenal thing. You know what I mean? Oh, look, it's a little, you know, copy paste, a little mini one. You know, that's usually what people think. I mean, I don't know, but she, but for her, it just triggered like, the worst of the worst she made fun of him for his size she made fun of him for everything that he did she said he was never going to amount to anything you know the same song and dance that most mommy issues (laughs) generate from uh after the divorce 
she decided I'm not even going to stay in California anymore. And she took them to Montana. Yeah. However, yeah, <laughs> I have a real part. So, is Montana the Midwest? Does that, does that count as the Midwest? Like I, I live in Massachusetts. It's, I don't know these things. It's not. Montana is not part of the Midwest. I don't believe. Oh, trust. I went into links to try and find some little like snippet to try and connect this to the Midwest so we could do the case on him. I could not find anything, unfortunately. <laughs> so I, I really got excited she... about Montana too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. So they, they, she packed up the kids and then she went to Montana. I don't know what the fuck they're doing there. If listeners live there, tell us what the fuck you do there. I mean, is there, there's mountains, right? right? Okay. I think so. Fun. Isn't that near Utah? Kind of? I don't Montana know the West. Up north. The West. Yeah. Oh. That's Wait. right. So stay tuned <laughs> That's fly over, right? <laughs> so, uh, but they were also, they all went to go live with her parents, I believe. And it was all crammed in this not so, not terrible, but not great house. But it was a very small quarters for the um you know, all the girls, him, and then the grandparents as well. Right. And, and Ed just got sick and tired of trying to, you know, go through his teenage changes, hormones, whatever, and constantly listening to the nagging of, you know, his mother, like every single day, he just couldn't take it anymore. So he said, fuck it. And he ran away. Like a lot of preteens think that is a great idea. Uh, He was going to go find his Right, I did too. So he I've was not been go... able to convince any of my kids to run away. Like I need to, I need to work <laughs> on this. You're like, bye. Seriously, yeah. I got four of them. You'd think at least one of them would run away. No, no. That means you're you doing know, something they right. Got it, they got it too good. Right. The uh, I come locks. from. <laughs> <laughs> See, you don't uh, you don't know this yet, Kate. Um, but I have a lot of mommy issues also. I can understand the one to get away from all that nagging and feeling insuperior um, type thing. So when I was younger, I packed up my little my little pony uh, suitcase and tied it to the back of my bike, and I ran away to live in the woods as a witch. So it went nice. good until it was like yeah, nine p.m. I came home with a bunch of like figurines I made out of ditch mud. It was fine. I was hungry, so <laughs> I didn't take snacks. Oh well. Wow. So I understand the running away thing. But anyways, uh, <laughs> this running away didn't play in his favor. Wasn't a good thing. He, his dad was basically like, uh-uh, you're connected to, to you know, Cornell. I don't want any part of that. We're just going to, we're cutting ties. Like, I don't want nothing to do with that bitch. I'm sorry. And he was left behind on Christmas Day in 1963, told that by his dad. The one guy that he thought was like, he reached out and was like, okay, there's got to be a different situation. Like he saw his dad as, you know, the victim. Obviously he was from right. what I can find research-wise, um, at least emotionally the victim. But that didn't work out. So he went back home and went back to live with his grandparents. And this is where his uh, antisocial behavior and like all his weird uh, cries for attention, help, whatever, he started to exhibit antisocial behavior and he started taking out his frustration on small animals and insects. Oh no. And this was at, yeah, I know. Here we go. This was at age 10. He buried a cat alive, then dug it up, decapitated it, and then mounted the head on a spike. 
What the fuck? That's so terrible. But for me, like, that seems like a scream for help. Like he was trying, like he was crying for help and like, you know, trying to make himself like notice. And now he's starting to scream. He's only 10. Like, right. I don't know. I can't imagine going through such creature. However, at 10, I mean, I can't empathize with some right. I don't know. You gotta know know right from wrong, at least a little. I know, but I don't feel like I can like, he just came from so much shit. Like there was not any happy times in his life. It, I, I don't know. I'm moving on for that animal either. (laughs) Right. I knew it. I, we have too many, uh, I knew it was the cat thing. (laughs) I couldn't Mm -hmm. say a cat thing, but, uh, so at 13, this is when it got real bad. Uh, he killed his family cat because, uh, it favored his sister more than her or more than him. And he got really upset and jealous by that. He just wanted something to like him and favor him. And it wasn't working out that way. Uh, so he, cut it up into pieces and hid it in his closet oh no yeah so he had like he talks about he has very dark fantasies in life like kind of like this like that's where it all started to you know form and then he would play these weird games with his sister he would play things like gas chamber and electric chair and he he would ask his sisters to tie him up and quote unquote flip the switch and he would tumble around and fumble on the floor and almost act like he knew what it was like to suffer from that type of torture, you know, and he played this all the time with them. But like, this was like the one time that his sisters paid attention to him and wanted to play with him. They thought it was hilarious because they're probably, you know, copy paste from Clarnell, but like he was just wanting their attention and this is what it took to get attention from his from his family it's fucking sad but moving on like yeah, waiting for you I guys mean, to say something you guys are just shaking your head like oh no, I damn mean, like the thing is <laughs> to keep in mind is that this is post-world war ii post holocaust that kind of thing like that theme you know playing war playing gas chamber was pretty common for kids right like, if, right. if 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 my 12 or 9 year olds go and do that now that's questions turning that's 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 maybe i don't let them come home anymore is the answer (laughs) you know but at the time like that sort that was pretty normal and i didn't even think of that that's such a such a solid point it's just sort of the timing of it and also with with clarnell like it's she's an interesting character because people and this is common with people who have borderline so borderline personality disorder for people who are not familiar is like it's not like you're on the borderline of being crazy or not crazy that's not where it's at it's it's a freudian term between being neurotic like anxiety to the nth degree and being psychotic and borderline is in the middle there which are two pretty shitty choices to have and that was Freud's sort of interpretation was that you're on the borderline of both. And I hate when Freud's right. And 
So, I mean, it's always, same though, same. You know, it's, it's always a penis. It's never a cigar. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I don't know, but, but borderline is a, it's a, it's a rough way to live because it's like how, it's kind of like how when, when somebody has ADHD now, we, oh, give them, this guy. we give them stimulants, right? And that doesn't yeah. seem like it would make sense because a lot of people who have ADHD are wound up and their focus is all over the place and, you know, they, they, they hyperactive, shit like that. And so you give them a stimulant and it calms them down. And the reason for that is because when you have ADHD, your brain is going 90 miles an hour all the time. And so you take a right. stimulant and it takes your body from doing maybe 30 or 40 miles an hour up to the same 90 miles an hour and now they match. And that helps you feel level. So with borderline, it's kind of similar in concept, except think more like socially and emotionally. You're at 90 miles an hour all the fucking time. Like everything no. goes on around you. And it's so that hard. Sounds terrible. It's so it's so exhausting. And so the only way that they can self-treat like self-medicate almost is to get the people around them upset to raise rile them up like of, rile them up emotionally you know yeah exactly to get the other you know it's because i'm sitting here at a 90 and everybody else is around me is at a 30 or a 40 and so if i can get them to raise up to my level now we're all on an even keel now we all get each other it's not rational but they're doing the best they can and there are treatments that work pretty well now, but those treatments weren't developed until like the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s. So Clarnell was just sort of, she was playing fuck around and find out before it was cool. Right. You know? <laughs> and so like, it makes sense to me that some people thought of her is this really like her co-workers reported that she was really nice and sweet and helpful especially oh, sure. female co-workers and that they couldn't understand why her, her children were so troubled and they couldn't understand why she would ever get a divorce and her family is really split between people who don't talk about her or people who say shit about her you know and that that all makes sense is because you have a hard time with the sort of gray areas, everything's either black or white in, right. when, you're, when you're functioning that way. And you just sort of constantly, you find yourself in these dramatic, miserable moments and you didn't set out to do that, but you don't have the coping skills to make it better. And so you're like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to make it worse, <laughs> you know, because what, like, I don't know what else to do. And so I'm just going to flail and scream some more and they're upset as well and so it's like it's a rough thing to and so i do have some sympathy for, for clarnell like a lot of the reports about what a horrible bitch she was came from kemper and uh. i don't know that a serial killer is necessarily my you know my bar my measure for truthiness oh. like i, I okay. feel like he might have been full of shit once in a while 
more than once that dude is super big he's full of shit probably a lot you'd, you'd think so <laughs> you know so so just I, I i take all of it with a grain of salt and and she wasn't great his biological father wasn't great either and so was Kemper doomed to become who he was of course not like we all make our choices but this is not a happy kid this is not a happy childhood and no so you know that makes a very good point plus we gotta think like that time period i mean for clarnell that was the time where you didn't like me- talking about mental health was not a thing it was just like cheer up bitch go make dinner like let's you know put a face on and let's get through the day like you can't allow yourself to feel anything other than the the tasks you're supposed to you know have the family and whatever and she worked as well and that was not the the norm of that time either for the the woman to go out and work like you know it's just let alone be in higher education I mean I like the point you brought that made me look at it a little differently because I I have gone through so many mommy issues that are very similar to this I mean I didn't know decapitate any animals or anything like you that, better but, not um, have god damn it <laughs> but um i have always been held to a higher stand and i get into this a little bit later uh but i've always been held to like a higher than other people's standard um i've had to deal with like trauma from never being good enough and always doing the most and like you know with education or with like trying to you know i i would literally at one point in my life do anything possible to hear I'm proud of you from my mother because of you know and there was a lot like a lot of belittling a lot of this because she claims it's because um I had such a high, I have such a high IQ and like she needed to hold me that at standard but I don't know it's a bunch of bullshit it was just I don't know it was, it was traumatic so I can understand from his point of view I can show empathy there uh do I agree with what he did absolutely not do I think it's vile and disgusting some of it, yes. Um, but I'm not completely convinced that it was in his DNA to make him that way. Or, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think people are, are born bad. I don't know. No, you learn that so, behavior. Right. Um, so moving back to, or circling back to his sisters, they, you know, at this time they were playing these like weird torture games with them. But they weren't fucking nice to him either. Uh, they constantly teased him. They called him fat. They said he was girly. They said, you know, they pushed him around. And they pushed, they lived by, uh, when they lived with their grandparents, they lived by a train track or train situ- like station, whatever. They would constantly, like, trip him and push him over into the train tracks and say it would be funny if he was dead because what? he's so fat he can't get up. Like, you know, mm, they attempted to drown him multiple times, you know? And... It, I mean, the, the, these are all coming from his words, so, but I mean, he's openly talks about it and he's, and like, he talks about how in some of his like interviews that he didn't care that they were like that because he wanted to feel connection with his family. And this was a connection, whether it was positive or negative, he was just thirsty for anything at that right. point. And he talks about like in lots of his, his writings, his interviews, stuff like that, um, he talks at length about how much he absolutely hating living with his grandparents. He described his grandma as senile and that his, uh, I'm sorry, his grandpa as senile and that his grandmother was constantly 
emasculating him um, and his and his grandfather. So clearly, we have apples and trees, learned behaviors. Maybe I mean uh, uh, in a melting pot with her mental health issues, obviously. But you know, apples and trees. If that's how she grew up, that it's cool to just emasculate people, and you know, who knows? I mean, is make them is feel borderline- bad about themselves. Is, but is I'm not really sure. Do you know, Kate, is borderline, is that genetic? Or? I don't care. <laughs> um, I am <laughs> not a nature versus nurture person myself. I, I, I feel like it doesn't matter where it comes from. It matters what you're going to do with it. And so, like, how do you parse it out? If it's, it's pretty common that multiple members of the same family will have the same mental illnesses but so you can't separate their genetics from their environment in that case and you can't ethically do like twin studies where you separate them at birth and leave one of them with their genetic family and send another one off to a mentally ill family and be like good luck so oh i bet that's happening i bet that's happening well yeah but not on purpose is what i'm saying and so you know it's hard it's hard to know um what how much is learned and how much is inherited but this was so much a culture you know a a product of the culture you know a product of the you know the very sort of when when um how to word this in a way that doesn't use the word fuck a lot when certain fucking people fuck a lot (laughs) yeah i'm gonna certain fucking people use phrases about making america great again this is what they were talking about is the times when men were men and women were constantly wearing makeup and had dinner hot on the table every night and had no actual you know personality or iq and shit like that like you don't get to be a human being and so it's really like we don't have good studies on it we don't have the, the culture was not one it's still not arguably but especially yeah, then it was true. not it was not a thing about you know letting people know when you were upset first or recognizing what's weird upset versus versus what's just upset upset right just cheer up bitch get through it come on but you know right and men don't have emotions except anger like right why would anybody want to feel anything i don't know you know i'm just kidding (laughs) i mean i have my days I, you know, it's a blessing and a curse to feel everything so deeply. I'll tell you that one because that's definitely me. That was um, definitely the most emo thing you've said today. <laughs> oh, cool. I try to, you know, at least do one thing. <laughs> uh, so, as I said, he's talking about his grandparents. And he's, he's living there when he's, you know, just got dumped on Christmas by his dad and had to go back with his grand his grandparents that he doesn't get along with. This was he was fifteen at this time. And when he was fifteen, something just, you know, went different. And he was sitting at the kitchen table with his grandmother and they got into a pretty heated argument. And he just got up and left. He left the table and went and grabbed his grandfather's rifle that his grandpa used to, his grandpa used to hunt animals with, uh, he brought it to the kitchen table and shot his grandmother twice in the head and once in the back. Her last words were, Oh, you'd better not be shooting the damn birds again. So (laughs) before he he shot her. 
Right. So she, he's like, oh, don't worry, Grandma, I'm not. I'm just kidding. That's terrible. But um, so he just, you know, it, I, I didn't want to use the word snapped because he didn't snap. He just calmly got up and went and just he had enough. So his grandpa That's... wasn't there at the time. And yeah, no shit. He, <laughs> right. And he talks about that after this happened, his grandfather came back from the store and Ed went outside and met him out in the driveway and he fatally shot him in the driveway right next to his car, right when he got out of the car from the grocery. He said that he, he told his uh, psychologist that he did, or psychiatrist from the first place that he takes a vacation at that he didn't know what to do next. So he didn't want his, he didn't want his grandpa to come in and see what he did because he was ashamed, you know? So he took whatever matters he thought was ideal before his grandpa could come in and, and see what he did to his grandmother. But the first person he called was Mommy Dearest. So he walked into the house and he called Mommy Dearest and said, I don't know what to do, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, well, you need to, you need to call the cops. What are you doing? Call the cops right now. So he called the cops and they came, they took him into custody. And the first thing he told the police was, I just wanted to see what it felt like to kill my grandma. What a fucking asshole, so we, dude. We, we've clearly escalated quite a bit. Um, like I said, he said he killed his grandpa only because he didn't want him to be mad or think less of him for killing his grandma. So during his imprisonment, he underwent many testings while he was there, obviously. Not only psychological, but he also underwent an IQ test. And he was, at this point, when he was getting all these tests, done, he was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. And the first round of IQ tests came back at 136. And then he was retested again right before his release. And it was at 145. And honestly, the IQ factor might have been, you know, the, the one thing that like ignited my interest in him, I guess, in the first place. Uh, hey, I don't know how you feel about IQ testing or whatever, but I was tested multiple times in my adolescence. Uh, and my IQ is 163, so I have a higher IQ, um, high IQ, really. I don't know why I'm trying to be modest. But uh, <laughs> uh, the 145 also kind of is in that same realm of, you know, um, the same, like, attributes, I guess. So being a fellow high IQ individual with deep-rooted mommy issues, I guess I just <laughs> always had you know, an intrigue or wanted to to look into his life, I guess, because I just really think it might've been different if he would have grew up in a different home setting, a more like nurtured, like a properly nurtured, you know, home life. Cause it was just, none of it was good, you know, but for those who don't know, I'm just going to explain kind of what an IQ test actually is and what it does test because it doesn't test everything. So I think that's important to mention. An IQ test, it measures the range of cognitive abilities and provides a score that is intended to serve as like a measurement of individuals and their intellectual potential and their ability. The modern tests focus on the abilities such as mathematics, memory, uh, spatial perception, and language. And the key focuses are the capacity to see relationships, solve problems, and remember and retain information. But IQ only usually impacts the areas of your life that are involving school and work. 
It doesn't go into like emotions or emotionally driven things. Right. Um, high, high scores equal high achievement. Lower scores indicate potential forms of like intellectual disabilities is what, I mean, that's literally what it says. A rating of 130 or above equates a very high IQ. And it's very rare to have a rating of 145 or higher. However, IQ does not mention or does not measure like your practical intelligence. Uh, like you're making things work, your creativity, your curiosity, motivation, emotional readiness to do things or, you know, for your age group, whatever. It doesn't measure anything like that. Right. So I'm going to list some of the, uh, the traits that are for individuals uh, with a high IQ. And this was very humbling to read some of this shit. I'll tell you that. Uh, Lorraine, you can chime in and let me know if any of these, you know, ring a bell. For oh, yours I will. Truly. Oh, thank yeah. you for giving me the, the, the moment to talk because girl, I am going to tell you all that. All right. So, and then Kate, if you think that this IQ testing is bullshit, I'm excited to hear that. Also. I'm literally uh, a forensic examiner. So yeah, I have, <laughs> I, I have, I have administered a couple hundred give or take. Nice. Yeah, I have thoughts. <laughs> I, I, have, I, I can't I wait thoughts. to hear them. All right. So here are, is the list of traits of a person with a high IQ, highly sensitive. Every single thing matters. They crave emotional responses from others. Well, that's me. Uh, They, they never feel good enough. Uh, (laughs) Usually has issues with deep rooted issues with one or maybe both parents. I'm turning red and getting goosebumps. I'm like, why do I feel like I'm being vulnerable right now? Oh, (laughs) vulnerable target for abuse. (laughs) Uh, they feel deep-rooted resentment, depression, anxiety, and ADHD, gender role conflicts, uh, analytical skepticism. They overanalyze everything. They suffer from extreme, extreme fear and extreme stress. (laughs) Uh, Requires a little bit more encouragement and validation from most people that are around them, especially the people that they care about their opinion. Uh, They have a high level of deep and often very dark curiosity uh they find their most comfort and solace in isolation however high iq individuals are able to give the highest level of nurture to others at their very best if they're mentally at their best so so all right rip rip that to shreds kate let's hear it (laughs) well i mean i like i I also i have been tested in rank in the the higher so basically you think iq is like a, a range the theory this is the, the theory that the academic concept is the it's not so much like you shouldn't think of like 132 is especially different from 130 there's all there there are a range and so it's basically about anything from 85 to 115 is considered normal because right. a lot depends on your mood that day, your focus that day, whether you like the examiner, whether you're comfortable, whether you're hungry, whether you're sick, all of the things. And IQ tests are written by old white men for old white men. So <laughs> there are you can you could bottom out on one of the scales just because you were educated differently. So nobody should ever administer an IQ test in isolation from other tests. It should be part of a battery of tests. And so by that, I mean, 
there's going to be an interview, there's going to be emotional questionnaires, both written and spoken. There's usually a variety of personality tests, like the raw shock, maybe the inklot tests, you know, mm-hmm. you, you look at look at this random ink spilled all over a page, what might this be? That's a personality test of sorts, as well as sort of measuring how you function emotionally. So like all of those things go together. If somebody just administers an IQ test and walks away, what that tells you is that's a grad student. That's who I just met as a grad student who has to administer a certain number of IQ tests in order to pass the class. Right. Guess how I know. And so, um, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it's iffy. Like we still use it. We still use it today. Like one of my kids is being assessed for autism and took an IQ test last week. And I've taken one myself a couple of years ago because I've had brain damage since my adulthood. You know, after I finished my doctorate, I had a, I was in a coma for a week and a half at one point, and then I developed epilepsy. Don't do either of those things. Not cool, not fun at all. And <laughs> so I had to go through this battery of testing to figure out what was going on. And they were like, you have ADHD. And I was like, fuck, I do. And turns out, actually, yeah, I, I really super Oops. do. So that's exciting. And, the, you know, an IQ test is is... Like I said, it's a range. So 85 to 115 is normal. 115 to 130 is considered high IQ. 130 to 145 is considered especially advanced. But ultimately, it doesn't really mean anything because if you at home don't have adequate food and nurturing and clothing and, you know, the sort of basics, doesn't matter how high your IQ is, you're not going to do well in life and, or at school or any of the things. One of the hardest things, I think, is when you get somebody who has a high level of intelligence, because you think about like anxiety, for instance, what you need in order to have anxiety is awareness of all of the terrible, terrible things that might happen. Point all at of you. the horrible, <laughs> awful, terrible, worst case scenarios. I'm pointing to myself, so it's all good. And, I'm pointing you know, at you like, guys. Like you have to have the high IQ in order to think that stuff through. And you have to have a high IQ in order to sit up in your head and obsess over that thing you said on the playground in the third grade. Oh, right. They still hate you. about it. Like, you This is why ignorance is fucking bliss, right? Uh, Right? Seriously. And (laughs) all of this is like, you have to have a high IQ to have that depth and range of memory. You have to have a high IQ in order to draw connections between things. Mm-hmm. You know, and often the connections that you draw are completely incorrect. You know, so you happen to have tripped and fallen on a Tuesday, and then the next Tuesday you forgot your lunch money, and you have decided that Tuesdays suck. Everything about Tuesdays are terrible. <laughs> Damn it. You caught me. You know, and <laughs> the reality is it's not Tuesdays. Some of us just fuck up a lot. You know, but we like patterns and we like to f- draw connections. And when you have a high IQ, you, you you have that extra sort of brain space. But it doesn't mean that you're doing it efficiently and it doesn't mean you're doing it accurately. 
So I don't actually put all that much weight into IQ except in comparison to other things. So an I, somebody's IQ standing alone doesn't mean a whole lot because there's a lot of people with what would qualify as a lower IQ who are business owners, who are parents, who are emotionally stable, who function well in the world. And they don't know what their IQ is because why would they? We yeah. only we only test somebody's IQ when we think there's something wrong, when they, they're not standing up to their potential. Damn it, so my fucking parents thought something was wrong with me twice? That's why they took me? <laughs> it pisses me off. <laughs> because they thought I was, I was different and I was smart. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. So it, is we, we, we don't we don't pay attention to the fact that there's no such thing as normal like no. an iq effectively just what like if you if you if you look at somebody and you think they're super smart and then you give them an iq test and their iq is normal you're like oh well they're really street smart then it's like okay well then why'd you give them the test in the first place you know right. what I mean? like, there's multiple only... intelligences everybody's yeah. smart you're just smart in different ways and so so like with you know for instance in, in the in in the iq there's there's what we, we would consider like stable knowledge facts math facts or how to spell things or trivia that kind of thing that's part of an iq test and then there's also like puzzles that you do like with blocks and that's why i did so good all those things that you just said, you know, and, I like those types of things. <laughs> and 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 they're, they're well, they're kind of, they're kind of fun. Like I loved do both administering and taking the test because it was always just this interesting thing. But I was never, you know, the defendant in a serial murder trial, so there wasn't all that much on the line for me, you know. But um, <laughs> but there's just this. The, what you're looking for is not what your overall. It's called full scale IQ. You want to know like. If somebody has a certain, like, say, let's say they, they get 120 on their their facts and their math knowledge, then you expect them to have approximately 120 on their processing speed and how good they are at spitting random letters and numbers back at you. And so the only time we really even care about that is if you get 120 on your facts, but you only get like, 80 on how how long it takes you to do the puzzles then we're like okay where's that from where's that coming from so we we care about the spaces in between and the discrepancies we don't really it's just night like parents use iq as a way to either brag about or fuck with their kids (laughs) both probably both yeah so on that aspect what would you say from your professional opinion um out of all that you've administered or been around, um, what do you think is a good age for, like, uh, no, I don't want to say good. I don't like that word. Um, healthy age for parents to have this done for their kid. I'm just trying to find out, like, the ego and all that bullshit. I mean, that I think I was tested the first time at five, and then I was tested again at 10 and the, the, from two different places. And I'm trying to think, like, the, what you just explained so did they think I was weird and fucked up and that's why they had me tested again? Or is this just like, we're going to make our dicks bigger and like, look what we made. Look at this. Which you, that would know, make could, sense. Could be either one. Like I, you know, I have four, <laughs> I have four kids and which is way too many. Don't have four kids. Um, but I Noted. have four kids and my older, 
My oldest was diagnosed with ADHD at age eight. And there was an IQ test as part of that battery of tests, which I, by the way, caveat did not administer because you can't do that. But mm -hmm. it was real, real obvious that it was ADHD. So we just needed somebody else to look at us and be like, oh yeah, she's ADHD as fuck. Like, absolutely. So that's, <laughs> that's what happened then. But then my next two were never tested and don't need to be. They're doing fine. You know what I mean? Like they, they are who they are. My third kid, he has ADHD as well, but we haven't gone through the battery of testing because that has loosened up. Oh, you know, in terms okay. of like, it used to be, you had to have an official battery of tests administrated, administered by an official psychologist in order to be diagnosed with ADHD. And so my oldest was born in the year 2000 and that's, they fell under that sort of progress process. Like everything has to be done a certain way. And by my, my third kiddo who was born in 2010, they were like, yeah, no, we can tell. Yeah, we're pretty sure. I'm like, yeah, okay, good, good, yeah. good. Thank you, because it saves us several hundred dollars, and we know too. So fine. <laughs> and then with my youngest, I don't think that we ever would have had her assessed, um, except that she's from a trauma background. She's adopted, and we had doubts about her like she she first of all she came to us when she was two and a half and she had had testing done at that point already before we ever lived with her and i don't think that testing was very good i'm trying to be diplomatic when i say i think they fucked everything <laughs> right. up when she was three and so now <laughs> she's nine and i'm like all right I feel like the best time to, to get a kid tested is when they are either under maximum stress for some reason, like, hey, my kid just shot grandma, then you should probably have them tested, you know? Right. But, right. but the, the real ideal is get a kid tested when they are not under a lot of pressure or stress, you know? So we think... opted not to have my nine-year-old assessed, we could have, during the pandemic during the lockdown because we were like, everything is so stressful and weird right now. How do you parse out what is her responding to the weirdness in the world and how much, how do you parse right. out what is just her being her? And so we waited until she'd been back in school for six months and then we were like, all right, she's having a hard time with some stuff. Let's, let's get her tested. But still things are as smooth as they're going to be right now in her life. And so that's, Usually we, we would try for that. So usually See, that, there's that makes a reason. a lot of sense. Yeah. That, okay. That, that actually kind of helps me out here because the, they said the first time it was my physician that said, she's really gifted. You need to go have her tested for some things. Cause I think, you know, like you need to nurture that and work with that, whatever. So they did. And I got 163 and they got bragging rights, whatever. And then they went and had me tested again when I was 10 and I, I still had the same results, but I asked them, um, cause they said that my grades were super high. Like they were, I was testing at a high school level in first grade, but they held me back in first grade because they said that I would come home and tell them I had no friends 
And uh, the teachers would say that I just go play off in the dirt by myself and I wouldn't play on the swings. I wouldn't talk to anybody, uh, which sounds to me like social anxiety, like, you know what I mean? Or something like that. But they, they were real worried at the school because I didn't want to like hang out with anybody. I wanted to go do my own thing. And that was, you know, scary. So they, you they had me Wednesday Adams. I know. I know. (laughs) So then they had me tested um, at the school to see like, Oh, maybe she needs homeschooled, whatever. They're trying to figure me out. And I tested extremely high, like high school level. And they said, well, it's not that that's not the problem here. Um, you know, it could just be a social thing. So they held me back and said, well, let's, let's hold you back. So that way maybe, um, cause I'm, um, I guess I'm fall, I fall at the brink where it's like, I'm the younger half of like, whatever that grade is. So they're like, well, maybe you'll connect better with the people that are, so you can be the older one or whatever. Uh, so it turns out that didn't work out great. And I still was, you know, what they considered antisocial, <laughs> I guess. And then, so they had me change schools, which caused even more trauma because I, they moved me into a school that was super segregated corn hicks fucking school where if you don't play a lot of sports or do certain things, you are not in, but they, it's kind of the one where I hated the fucking school I went to there. I hated it because I was way smarter than all those fucking idiots. And they had so much control over my life. It pissed me off, but like they formed their groups early on in grade school. So if you didn't fall into that group, you were an outsider. You came in and like, we want nothing to do with you. So I felt like, you know, my parents already held me back. So I, I took all this time was finally gaining these like actual friends that I could, you know, have conversations with and not hate like hanging out with or whatever. And then they ripped me from that and take me to a situation where again, I'm, I'm feeling alienated or have to start over. I don't know whatever do you think that's what happened with Kemper do you think that's how he felt because he didn't he have to move I don't know yeah he, well, yeah, he, ripped did, from his home he, he did a lot they they, they tested it. He, he, the, he did a lot of moving back and forth between Montana and, and California and the grandparents he right. killed were in California because he was tested for the first time in Atascadero State Hospital in California yeah after he killed his grandparents. So we don't have any concept of baseline for him. And he had access to the testing materials before he took the tests. Yes. He He befriended, he befriended, uh, every, I mean, he like schmoozed them all. They, they said he was a model. Um, I don't know what, they called him an inmate, but I guess I was, yeah. No, you know, like, Tascadero is a it's a it's a mixed like mental a juvenile hospital slash okay yeah slash prison, and he but he had access to the actual testing materials, not just the people. So he memorized, I think, a lot of the the answers. I don't think he's actually that smart. I, th- I think so too. Interesting. So, I mean, as you said that. So I was like, oh man, if she don't say it, I'm going to say it. Cause that, that to me seems like to remember stuff. It takes, it, it takes a lot for me. Okay. I'm not a good rememberer unless I've seen your name a million times. I'm not going to remember it, but it seems to me like if he, if he had a, at least a decent intelligence enough to retain that information that still gave him that, that IQ that maybe, might be better than most of the inmates in there would be, you know, to kind of convince them 
hey, just give me the answers to the test or, oh yeah, I can grab this for you or they, he can barter or whatever and then retain that information. I think, I think that's. Correct. I agree with both your guys' statements on that, but what's the basis of that? Is it because he's just thirsty as fuck for someone to show him some sort of positive attention? And this was positive reinforcement of being like a kiss ass at this place which is later on in his life, he's a kiss-ass to the cops, even at, like he wanted to be a cop and he couldn't get in because of his size, um, like the size restrictions, but he still would go hang out at the cop bar. He would still hang out with them. He'd be like, oh, hey, you know, pull over when they were on, you know, whatever, you know. Well, I mean, for, ass, some, like, for that, he's, he's, he's a military kid, brat. True. He, he values okay. that military life and he wanted to be a cop and couldn't, so he came as close as he could he it, uh, let's assume and i think it's probably a safe assumption that kemper probably so it's called personality disorders like borderline that's different from being schizophrenic he didn't have schizophrenia i don't think there's any evidence of hallucination of delusions of hearing voices of not you know i mean schizophrenia has this whole Schizophrenia is actually closer to ADHD than pretty much any other diagnosis is. Schizophrenia is fucking terrifying. They had a few when... um, It's tough. Oh, yeah. They had a few a simulation when I was in college because I took every, like, psychology, abnormal psych, all that stuff. I took all those classics. I was so interested in. I want to see, like, how people tick and all this stuff. And they had us do um, a couple of, um, like simulations where you have to have headphones on and listen to what someone with a that suffers from schizophrenia listens to and still they want us to still pay attention in class and focus and try and like go on with our day and some of that i mean it's terrifying and for those Mm -hmm. who haven't you i think you can still find um at least one of the recordings on youtube if you want to listen to it and see but it's it's scary i can't imagine living well, and life not and just, having to not just auditory you know that's the thing about schizophrenia is it's also th- things like they have a hard time not ev- not everybody with schizophrenia but a common feature is that they have a hard time recognizing whether they are hot or cold oh really i didn't like know they that just, they don't feel their body temperature in the same way that other people do and so that's why very often people with schizophrenia wear a winter coat year-round so you'll see them in broiling hot summer weather wearing a winter coat and the reason for that is what they've learned is i'm not good at tapping into how i literally feel but i've learned that frostbite is a son of a bitch so <laughs> I'm going to wear, if I wear a winter coat all the time, maybe I'll be too hot in the summer, but it's a lot harder to get permanently sick or injured by getting too hot than it is by getting too cold. So if they're going to do that. And so like, I don't, from my understanding of Kemper, like this, again, we're talking, you know, the fifties, sixties, basically anybody who is a little bit quirky, some old white man was going to look at you and say you have schizophrenia like that's what yeah. they did that's it's it was constant i think more likely kemper had a personality disorder either borderline learned or inherited like mom or narcissistic or histrionic or dependent personalities all of which are a lot 
the same, you know, so narcissistic is what it sounds like, right? I'm the most important (laughs) ever. Um, Narcissistic personality disorder is about the closest that we think of, of somebody being like a sociopath. Right. And just, we're going to, we're going to talk about a big one in season two. And so that's, that's, (laughs) that's narcissism there. Um, Dependent personality disorder is having a a really hard time. If somebody asks you, who are you and what are you like? And what do you like to do? Most of us have at least an answer and a dependent personality disorder means they really have a hard time understanding like where I stop and other people start. And oh. their personality like, will like, change markedly from group to group because they're just right. trying to blend and fit in all the time. And histrionic is like all of their emotions are up to an 11 at all times. And all of those are basically the same in a lot of ways. Like, I think psychology went through a, a span in, in, in and around this time in the 70s, 80s, where we went a little over the top in terms of let's have a separate diagnosis for every fucking thing. And (laughs) we never stopped to figure out like, why bother? Like, why do we need to know this? Does it like, I feel like progressively with generations is getting uh, more and more uh, intense with identities and labels on every little thing. And like, you know, it's, it's not grouping people, but it's like meticulously taking out different, Oh, whatever. I, well, we want I mean, we want a reason. Things. We want to know, like, and, oh, oh, well, right. I do that because I'm borderline or whatever. And the answer is like, well, borderline and histrionic and dependent and narcissistic, they all fit in what's called cluster B personality. It's a certain there's there's three clusters of personality disorders, and so one, I, I, I it doesn't really matter what A and C are, but they have to do with. First of all, there's, I'm, I'm having multiple thoughts at the same time, which is a thing that I do. And so I stutter. It's cool. <laughs> um, but so one has to do with like, it's, it's called a schizoid personality, which is different from schizophrenia. It's a difficulty in connecting with other people like autism in a way more like we think. Like we don't even use it very much anymore because we've realized like, why do we need to put a label on that? There's no treatment for it. It's just sticking a label on somebody. Why do we do that? We're just pathologizing these people. Don't do that. And so think of things like pers- schizophrenia, things like depression, anxiety. Those are either cognitive disorders, how you think is different, that's schizophrenia, or mood disorders, right? Depression. Your mood, right? Yeah, everybody's like waving yes. their hands, like, "Yeah, that hey, one's me. Oh, that yes. one's me." Stop. Hello. Yeah, little, little each, and um, and so, for the most part, things that are cognitive or mood based tend to respond to medication, or at least we have developed medication for it. Oh. Personality disorders, first of all, don't respond to medication because. There's not anything wrong with you. It's just you have a personality. You know, it's your, it's your, your, think of it, it's the difference between your brain being sick or your soul being sick. And so you can have a fucked up, you can, you, you, well, you may not have one at all. That's fine. But, oh, no. (laughs) That's up to you. You, you can have a, 
I, I don't judge. I, <laughs> you can have a, a really unhealthy way of existing in the world. You could have a broken personality that cannot get along with other people. That's sort of what we were talking about with borderline. That can be a thing, but there's no pill that makes it better. No. Nope, and, sure that. You know, and and it it's not just that there's not a pill that makes it be- doesn't make it better, but that you don't see yourself as the one that's wrong. You see everybody around you. you like you see the problems that, with the people that are yeah. around you instead. So think of that as sort of like, you know, you know, we talk about seeing the world through rose colored glasses as though that's a good thing but picture it like like you have a pair of glasses that you can never ever take off and they're the wrong prescription or the wrong color that's, no that's thank what a pers- you right that's what a personality disorder is kind of like is that everything that comes in is distorted a little bit so if somebody looks at you twice in the store and you have a paranoid personality type you might take that as they're watching me they're following me, they're stalking me, when the reality is, maybe you smell bad. <laughs> you know, like, you, that's a possibility. Why are you going to try to tell us we smell bad? You know, no. like, who, who knows? And and so it's just like, like, there's this tendency to draw conclusions when, you're, when your personality is not, quote, unquote, normal. And so as soon as we start putting labels on people, we're, we're otherizing them. It's called, you know, we're, we're calling, they're sick. Their personality is sick. They have a disorder. They're broken. I'm fine. And listen, <laughs> I am a psychologist and I work with a lot of them. We are a profoundly fucked up group of people. Like <laughs> psychologists are messed up. If a psychologist ever looks at you and tells you you're normal, thank them and leave immediately. <laughs> Yes. So like we are, we, we're well, that's just, why I wanted to get into that profession. That's why, you know, uh, that's why like I'm here. This is what I am <laughs> saying. So, so it's just that, that like, we don't, we, we start to look for like labels for every damn thing. And at the end of the day, it's like, are they able to function? And like in Kemper's case, Clarnell functioned. She was not well. I think, I think she struggled interpersonally, but she functioned. So did Kemper until he didn't. Right. Right. And so this whole, how important is his IQ or how important is it to, to have an accurate diagnosis? All of that I'm a little iffy on, but if we're going to give him a diagnosis, I think it's more likely borderline or narcissistic, like he learned at home and that he just took it to the nth degree he sure did i mean you can tell by his later interviews narcissistic for sure like in his late i mean he just if he's really feeling comfortable he doesn't like i've listened to so many tapes it's probably sick but um it is sick i guarantee i want it's sick i'm one of those fucked up people that likes to know I, i like to i think people are a puzzle i think the human brain is fascinating and it's a puzzle also and i just want to find out about all of it it's terrible it's unhealthy. Probably. You're talking but, to um, someone who went to school for it. <laughs> I gotcha. No, right there with you. Well, I mean, it was my it was my minor in college because my mother told me it was not a 
a successful profession to go into. Yeah, that's she why didn't I went think in. it was good. Mm-mm, mm-mm. That's why I went into. My, I, I have mommy issues also. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, yeah, yeah. I started off as an engineer. Great. Yeah, no, you, you, mine is not. And I started off in engineering because my mother was like, "You have to be able to get a job." And I switched to psychology my junior year, and hmm, she didn't like that. I was delighted. Yeah. Oh my goodness. See, I um, I got a business degree. Uh, I had classes for pre-law because that's what I thought, but I wanted to go into like the aspect of psychology. So like, so something that has to do with the brain, neuroscience, something like that. That's what I wanted to do. Well, I sucked at, uh, anything that had to do with nursing, which was like the first like couple of, like the prereqs you had to have at the community college. And I was like, ew, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do biology. Yeah. I don't do none of that shit. Yeah, like, don't touch nope. me. So I, yeah, I don't want to touch people. Right. God. And I, and I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to know how the brains work like neurologically, but I'm going to see what, you know, personality wise, all that fun stuff. So I did all those classes, got my degree and uh, worked in a law office for maybe two weeks and was like, oh my God, they stuck me in a box and I'm looking at papers. Like, yes, I know how to do this. This is easy, but I can't function here. So I went to hair school and I am, uh, I teach, I am an educator for teaching cosmetology and I've been in the hair game for almost 15 years. And my mother repaid me by saying we wanted a straight lawyer, not a gay hairdresser. So here I am. Here we are. And (laughs) And I just, I own it and it's great. So fun stuff, fun, fun little rabbit hole there. Um, but uh where did we leave see a lot i'm looking at my notes and a lot of this stuff we definitely already debated thoughts on it we didn't even we we took the right road to success on my timeline of things here (laughs) um i did have um so obviously he went and he we already talked about he you know had access to the test he he got like these high results on the test he was one of the people that like took the new wards around and showed them the ropes and was like you know the fucking tour guide of the crazy bin you know like stuff like that like he just <laughs> he was who can help me who can i trust you know he was that guy so this is a um obviously with all that process he he got let out cuz that was that's a big question like oh my god why did they let him out because then he did it again you know he reoffended or whatever. And it was much worse. So against all the recommendations of his doctor, he actually, his doctor said, you know, he, he can be released. He can function well in society. He's still young enough. I think that he's made changes while I'm here. We've saved him. It's great. However, uh, we think he should go live with dad, but that didn't, wasn't an option. Uh, so he was released in Clarnell's, uh, custody after coming out of the hospital and this was against multiple recommend like multiple recommendations from different doctors as well as staff there like they tried to load that gun and be like no that's what's gonna fuck him up we've got him all we've got him all saved and fixed like don't go you know break the china here but it that's not what happened he went back with his mom and this was the final statement from the doctor that um was a big piece of him getting out if i were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would, I would think that we are dealing with a very well-adjusted young man, a young man that has initiative and very much intelligence, as well as he was free of any psychological illness. He has made a very excellent response to the years of treatment and the rehabilitation. 
and would and would see no psychiatric reason to consider him a danger to himself or anyone else. So great he, assessment. He, right. He gets out, um, you know, beautiful worded piece there. Uh, and he goes on to function decently for a little while. He went on to get his college degree. He worked really hard to achieve his goal in working in law enforcement. You know, that was one of the goals he set. And so this is where I kind of see it as like in his life, this was the one little fucking morsel, the one little granule of possible hope for him. In in, in my opinion, this is my opinion, uh, based alone. But you know, he finally got that like, okay, you did a good job. Like you you did a bad thing. Now now you can go do this. And what are your goals? And he was focused on them. And he like you know he achieved he started achieving goals and and feeling better about himself. And then he they said, nope, you're too fucking fat. You're too big. We don't want you. I can attest to that. I went through the exact same thing with cheerleading. I hate to keep bringing it back to my own story, but I feel like that's why I wanted to talk about him so badly. Um, I was in cheerleading for 14 years. I really like latched onto that because I felt like, oh, well, this is forcing these people to be friends with me type thing. And I weighed a buck 35 soaking wet tiny thing and went and tried out for a cheerleading team at both Ohio State and Toledo. Um, both I was uh, not accepted, quote unquote, because I did not meet weight requirements. I was literally skin and bones and muscle and had all the ability, but they said, no, bitch, you're fat. Sorry. So I can have empathy for this situation. It's crushing. That was, it took me a long time to process something that I had set my goal and then being like, you know, you do all you can, you're working with whatever you have. And then it's just, I don't know, just really it's not enough. It, you're never fucking enough, you know, but like <laughs> I can, under, I can empathize with that situation. So that happened. And like I said earlier, he continued to go and hang out with the guys at the bar and, you know, would listen to the, the scanners and be that guy that shows up. Let me see if I can help, you know? And he worked different like jobs and then he eventually started working for the department of transportation and he had a pretty steady work like ethic there they had positive things to say about him he always showed up he never called off you know he was always you know that guy we go to you know this this probably a fucking facade <laughs> that he created all that's going well outside but his home life is still shit basically and this is a quote from ed describing his home life after his release in carnell's care my mother and I started right in on some horrendous battles. Day one, it was just crazy. Just horrible fucking battles. Violent, vicious. I've never been in such a vicious verbal battle with anyone else in my entire life. I would go into fists with a man, but if it was with my mother, I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things. We couldn't just fight physically. She almost insisted on fighting physically with me over the smallest things. Like if I didn't brush my teeth properly, she was always on me. And then he talks about how, because of this, he saved all his money that he could working for the Department of Transportation and he was going to move out. And he, he finally did, you know, and then she started stopping by almost on a daily basis. Like, oh, I was heading home Why? from work and now he, she's just showing up and she would call him all the time. And you know, just be, make surprise visits to where he worked and just like really 
forcing herself into his life that he's trying to separate it, you know, and create some distance there. And that to me also feels like, okay, he came out, he had this bad situation. He's still trying to make small moves, but maybe they're big for him, you know, like living out on his own, paying his own bills. That's something he has not done his whole life at this point. And he just wants to get away from her and she keeps just injecting herself into his life. But as you know, this happens, he ran into some financial difficulties, especially living in California, and he had to come back home, Um, which she just threw at him, you know, the I told you so's and you're a piece of shit. This is why I knew you'd do this, blah, blah, blah. And he talks at length. I'm sure you guys have heard about how she wouldn't shut her fucking mouth, which is what brought famous last words. (laughs) So I know you guys have heard the crimes. I'm not going to go into the crimes. Like I said, I really just wanted to go into the underlying issues of, you know, how he got there. We've had a lot of discussion on it, but I'm going to leave the floor to you, Kate. If you have any other things that you want to, I mean, debunk some of my opinions, whatever you want to do, rip me for shreds. I'm here for it. <laughs> no, I think what, he's, what's your you know, he's, he, he's, a, he's an interesting case because at this time i don't i don't remember his arrest date his second arrest date the 80s somewhere is that yeah it was in the 80s early 80s i believe yeah and this is right around the time that the term serial killer was starting to hit the market sort Mm -hmm. of yeah and it's when a couple of the FBI agents, you know, John Douglas, the, the author of the book Mindhunter before it became a Netflix thing. Um, yeah. They started visiting convicted serial killers in prisons to effectively ask them, tell me what makes you tick. And the problem with that is twofold. And, you know, apologies to John Douglas. I like I have I've actually I have spoken to him about this and I and I do apologize because I, I put him on the spot. And um, the answer is you only talked to failures. All of the serial killers that all of our common information is based on are the failures are the ones who got caught and got convicted. Right. So they never knew, they say that, oh, well, serial killers were mostly, you know, 20-something white men. Well, that's because that's (laughs) multiple reasons. First of all, there are serial killers of color. There always have been. But we don't care about victims of color. And a, 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 a... black serial killer can kill a black woman and the police are like what uh, i didn't notice she she probably ran away yeah She's probably ran away like exactly that. girls are just like that and so you don't see a ton more so now but in the 70s and 80s you didn't see a ton of interracial crimes serial crimes right yeah because that would stand out to onlookers and serial killers are really good at blending in the reason that gacy is is stands large in our consciousness the reason that kemper stands large in our in in bundy is that those are three people who are high functioning 
and everybody's like, oh, well, these are these are high functioning individuals. And so this must be sort of this rubric for what all serial killers are really like. Or this is what a, a I'm using visual quotes, which I hate, but normal serial <laughs> killer, right, is is a, a, a middle, you know, middle 20s to middle 30s white man. Right. And, and that's because they, they could get away with picking up victims of the same race and no one noticed that's that's all it was especially during those times that's what i'm saying you know so there's more mixed race offenses that happen now but but at that time like the atlanta children abductions like that shit was going on the same time as temper and all that you know what i mean and they didn't even even think twice to invest like there was so many kids missing by the time they all like legitimately stepped in and trying to do the work you know oh yeah we don't care about victims of color we still don't you know i know you know but the 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 atlanta child murders is a good example of how why is it that i believe that wayne williams or someone that looked like wayne williams was the guy and it's because in the these children were going missing out of predominantly black neighborhoods in atlanta Right. If it had been a white offender, everybody would have talked about there's a white right. guy with a car. In our Don't neighborhood. That ain't supposed right. to be in our here. neighborhood. Yeah. Right. Yep. And, you know, uh, uh, if a white man had gone up to a black child in the 80s and said, get in my car, the kid would have gone screaming. Oh, yeah. Right. You know, and, and so it would have been noticed. And so serial killers, this is their art in a sense, this is their life's work. And in order to continue doing their life's work, they have to not get caught. And you avoid getting caught by blending. You don't stand out. And so you don't abduct violently in front of a crowd. You don't take victims that will be noticed. And that includes both victims that would be noticed in the process of abduction but also just driving down the street in the 80s a a person of color in the passenger seat and a white person in the driver's seat is going to get noticed or vice versa and so Mm -hmm. you know it it was a little bit less like one of one of uh kemper's victims was of asian descent but this was in a college town and so my my sense is that that sort of and, flew under the radar a little bit. Plus, she was she was fifteen years old and hitchhiking. But they blended in though. But he blended in there on campus because that's where Clarnell worked, and he was like always, you know, driving around campus or always on campus. So they saw him as like you know, quote unquote, friendly face. And well, he, and he must had be a trustworthy. Sticker. He had her parking right. sticker on his car. Yeah, yeah, you know, and oh, it works in department. I mean, and he. He speaks very eloquently. If you listen to him talk, I mean, he speaks beautifully. I, I joke with that. I said, like, one of the things I want to purchase is him reading an audiobook of V.C. Andrews. because She's my favorite. He's, he's but, done audiobooks. I know of V.C. I want to buy them. <laughs> it's, it's, it's sick, but I do. I follow. No, but, I, yeah. Yeah. He's he's done audiobooks. And, and I mean, frankly, let's keep people busy behind bars. Like, let's give them 
skills and trades, like by all means. So I just, right. I, I, I feel like we, you know, the, the, the premise of Mindhunter was very much on, we're going to talk to serial killers and we're going to learn how they do what they do. And then we're going to know how to catch more. That's a noble premise, but it's fundamentally flawed because all of the people they talk to have already gotten caught. I think there are a lot more serial offenders out there that we've never caught and oh, that absolutely. we've never even considered. I think there are a lot more women that are serial offenders than we realize. And not all of them use poison. Because serial nope. murder, serial anything, is not a personality trait. It's a crime. But it's not a personality. Like a, a, a serial killer, there's no such thing as like an, an exemplar of like, this is what it looks like to be a serial killer. And so that, I mean, Mindhunter literally changed my life. Like I read that book my junior year of college, and that I changed it's phenomenal my entire phenomenal book career because that's that's what I went from. You know, I went to a, a engineering college in upstate New York, middle of fucking nowhere, and I got sick. I got a kidney infection, and this is in nineteen ninety six, ninety seven, and so this is when books were still like paper books, actual physical things, and someone brought me that book in the to read in the hospital so i mean that tells you a little bit about who and what i was even then at this engineering school because i was used to like everybody was kind of dour engineers are sort of a buttoned up bunch and they're not happy by nature often especially in crowds they're just not i can hear a friend of mine aaron gets mad at me when i say it but you know what suck it up aaron it's true and also where i went to school was on the canadian border so it was dark and cold all the time like it snowed well, from the fuck october is happy there. to may well, the fuck is happy. It, yeah, it's exactly everybody's miserable all the time and so i was just like of course I'll, i i'm miserable everybody's miserable this is what you do and i'll get a job and i'll be miserable and that's that's fine and somebody brought me that book and i read it and i was like wait this guy seems to like his job and that's interesting shit i want to do that and so I dropped all of my engineering classes. And when I went back to school in the spring, I took only psychology classes. I was the only psych graduate from my undergraduate class. And then I moved out to Boston for grad school. And I ultimately, I, I did interview with the FBI. I did not join the FBI because I don't want to be a cop. I didn't want to keep a gun in my home. I didn't want the cop mentality. And you have to be a regular FBI agent for a couple of years before you can join the BAU anyway. So I, that wasn't my thing. Plus, you have to travel about 48 weeks out of the year. Damn. Which makes sense because, like, the other the alternative to that is that you live somewhere where there's year-round serial killers. That's not ideal. No thanks. <laughs> you know, so... I, like, I'd rather it be away games, fair. But all of that boiled down to I couldn't be the kind of mother I wanted to be. And I had my first kid yeah. at 22. So by then, I was like, all right, well, then I'm going to go, I'm going to be a forensic psychologist. And then I'm going to work with them after, like, I'm not going to go looking for them. I'm going to work with them after they've been caught. And I also, we're not going to work on theory so much as ask me a question and I will answer it. That's that's basically what forensic psychology is, is the court or a lawyer or somebody will at, will say, okay, I need the answer to the question of what's their diagnosis? Are they competent to stand trial? 
are they where should they best be housed you know in general population or not there are certain states if you live in a death penalty state you also have to be found competent to be executed that's a fun fact and so that's why i live in england yeah because i was never going to have anything to do with pulling the plug pressing the button whatever it is like i that was not going to (laughs) be like our our I believe in our criminal justice system, but it is deeply flawed and fucked up to the point where thinking we have it right to the point where we're willing to kill somebody for it. I just couldn't, I just couldn't be a part of that. And, you know, on my say, you know, every execution is signed off by some psychologist. It's, it's usually hidden. It's not like you could just find their names, but, at the end of the day, somebody goes to bed at night knowing that if I had signed that document differently, this human would still be alive. And I couldn't deal with that. That's heavy. That's, that's really that's heavy a, to have a heavy burden to carry. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm not a huge advocate for the death penalty either, so I can understand that. That's, ugh. I'm not a huge advocate um, for anything. <laughs> just kind of co- just coasting through life just listening to this this uh discussion you two are having because boy oh boy at my house right now i don't know what the hell's going on out there but <laughs> i'm sorry i had to press mute a minute <laughs> it happens it happens normally i just you know this is why i record in the evening so that the these the short loud ones capital capital <laughs> short loud ones are are in bed or have been shackled in the dungeon or whatever it is that we have to do, you know, (laughs) but yeah, it's been, it's, it's all of that stuff. Like Mindhunter changed my life, but then ultimately like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be an FBI agent. I, I didn't want to by the end of my master's. And so when I went on for my doctorate, it was definitely a case of I'm going to go, I'm going for clinical psychology specifically. And having the opportunity to sit and talk to people on the unit you know if i'm not seeing clients or whatever like when i was still a student you have to be on the unit a certain number of hours per week whether the unit being either in prison or in a locked psych facility or whatever you have to be there a certain number of hours a week and you have to do a certain number of things per day but there's also a lot of downtime like you anytime you've visited anybody in the hospital you know like it's boring like there's a lot yeah. of downtime. And so I used to just sit in the, the day room with people and be like, what does that mean? When they say you hear voices, what does that mean? Oh, like, wow. does it sound like it comes from inside your head? Or does it, do you, do you turn over your shoulder? Cause you think they're standing next to you. Are they talking at you? Or are they talking about you? Is it a male voice? Is it a female voice? Is it your own voice? Is it familiar? Is it a stranger? Like, you know, like, what does it actually mean? And that was all fascinating shit because i was literally gonna say that's so fascinating you know it's people like to talk say amanda's gonna say something she her eyes are lighting up like christmas tree bulbs (laughs) you know and a lot of people just they want to be heard you know and and yeah yes yes i i just i i i believe that there should be consequences for our actions and i believe in this the criminal justice system so i am not coming from the school of bleeding heart, let them all go. Because like some people are objectively terrifying and unsafe. They just are. 
but they're still human underneath. And one of my favorite stories to tell about when I was right, I worked, I did most of my forensic psych work either in Massachusetts or New Hampshire. And I was up in New Hampshire. I worked at the state prison for men. And I can't say the name of the person that I was working with, but he was a convicted and admitted serial killer. And it's common for people to have multiple court dates after you've been found guilty. Usually there's like subsequent, either it's a a retrial or an appeal or there's all kinds of shit that has to go on. And when that happens, so, so this guy was housed in the secure housing unit, the shoe, the solitary at at the prison. But in, in, in when, when you're on the unit, you can be left basically alone. Like I had to do rounds once a day where I would go from cell to cell and check in, but they didn't have to answer me. It was just because with them being locked down 23 and a half hours a day, they couldn't just come over to mental health if they wanted to talk to somebody. And and it's that whole concept of therapy doesn't work the same way behind bars anyway. So nobody ever came to mental health looking for therapy is the answer. But yeah, I still had to make myself available. And so I knew this guy, I had seen him. And basically, you just go door to door like, hey, do you need mental health today? Do you need mental health today? And for the most part, I would either get a no thanks or a fuck off, depending on the person. I was like, oh, you know, same, depending right? on the, the mood. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I would pretty much answer them in kind, you know, thank you, fuck you too, and keep moving you because what are you going to do? <laughs> And this, but when they, when they had a hearing, when they had a court date or something, they needed somebody on them at all times, both to try and prevent escape. This guy was not a a high flight risk, but still, you don't want to get something wrong. Right. Just in case. Just in case. And also in case they decide you know, I'm feeling good. I got McDonald's today. I got to drive to the courthouse. Everything's cool. I'm just gonna, you know, since I'm feeling cute today, thought I'd admit to a couple of serial crimes. Like that's the theory that they want somebody on them just in case they happen to drop the confession or two. This was my, always my biggest fear. I was like, don't fucking confess to me. Please do not do this. I don't want to be a part of your case for the rest of my life. Like that ties you up for years. This this person specifically, this guy is still there's there's still aspects of his case that are still going through the trial oh, court now. Wow. And this was in approximately two thousand five or six. You're talking That's so a six, whole lot of fucking two, commitment, you know? man. I don't like all that commitment. And like, I was like, so just please <laughs> do not you know, like you can't tell them don't but you can tell them don't like there are ways and there are ways to sort of discourage right. to be like, hey, hang on. I have to go get a cop. I can't like I'm not a cop. I can't Mirandize you. You you know, and they were they, they got it. They knew this guy had been through it already. He knew. And so we're just mm-hmm. sitting in this this sort of ante room in the courthouse waiting for his turn to be on stand. And it's been quiet long enough that it's gotten awkward. Oh no! I'm already creeped out, (laughs) and and I'm like 27 or so at the time, and I'm I'm little and cute and don't know shit about shit, and I'm like, oh god, oh god, oh god. He goes, 
I have a question for you. I'm like, oh, fuck. Never good. Never good. No. <laughs> Run away. What is your question? And I'm like, and I pointed out, like, you're not, conf- like, if you confess, like, I have to. And he's like, no, 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 no. What did the farmer say when he lost his tractor? What? Am I having a stroke right now? Like, what? He's like, no, no, I wonder what did the farmer say when he lost his tractor? I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? He goes, he said, where's my tractor? And then he laughed his balls off. Wow. He like fell over a- laughing. And I'm like, did you? Seriously? Did you just tell me a dad joke? And he's like, well, we're going to be here for like two more hours, you know, or whatever. I don't feel like, I feel like it's weird to sit here in silence. So. Wow. What a cornball. Yeah. So I told jokes back. And and what I took away with that is that remembering of like, this is a guy who did terrible things. He did, like, like I said, I cannot name him, but there is at least one whole entire podcast devoted to his crimes. Wow. So bad dude. Icky. Not good. Keep him locked up, please. Like, I feel strongly about this. But he's still human. He's still got a goofball sense of humor. He's still, he's got children that are in their early 30s now, approximately. And, and all of that matters. And I think if we, if we get too heavy into the bad guy did bad things, lock him up, fry him mindset, we're never going to make anything better. I agree, for sure. It, I I love all that you just said. I really don't even want to say anything more about this because I feel like that was like a perfect like cherry on the cake type whatever. Sunday, whatever the fuck you want to have your, however you want to have your dessert. I, I like that. At the end of the day, we're all human, you know? And maybe, I mean, I strongly believe maybe we shouldn't, try to adhere to different labels or diagnosis, things like that, because I don't know, it's just, I don't know. There's a lot of, I'm losing, I'm a loss for words, honestly, at this point. <laughs> I don't know. I'm like trying to put into words what I want to say, but I, I can't. So. I feel like with him and how heinous his crimes were. Okay. So Ed Kemper, We've been talking about him and like how he grew up and the people that he was around and the the thirst for friendship and some sort of relationship with anybody. I know me personally, I have uh, I have difficulties with some of those things because as a human being, we crave companionship. You know, we are social beings. We're not, you know, solitary we're not a, a jungle cat, for instance, although that would be pretty great. So what I'm saying is the thirst for people to be a part of your life is not abnormal. That is not something that is abnormal. The bad thing about the way that he carried his life, and I, I would say almost in a Jekyll versus Hyde type of thing where he's one person entirely to the people that he interacts with that are his age or that are in his career path versus him being thirsty for attention from say these co-eds, for example, that he ended up taking their lives, you know, is 
he wanted people to like him of their own accord. And then he wanted these other people to like him his way. So it kind of feels like to me that he just didn't know how to regulate the interaction he was having with these, the co-eds versus his professional or his, his family. They were all different ways of interacting with people. And unfortunately, the worst happened to some of these people. And I feel it's a mixture of learned behavior versus his own tendency to react to other people in his life. So. Yeah, I, I like that take on it. And I'm really excited that we got to talk about this with, you know, us three, because I definitely have a different take, but you guys have really begged a lot of questions for me because uh, going through a lot of the same or similar traumas, you know, and having some similar, uh, I guess, traits that he does, I feel a lot of empathy towards him. And I've always been like, yes, I don't, I don't agree with the things that he did, but I always try to like, I've, I've tried to, you know, think about, well, what if some of my traumatic things that really uh, shaped a lot of a, a large part of my life, you know, definitely adolescence into beyond teenage years. What if it just kept going, you know, and what if I just had enough? Could I go to those lengths? And it made me, I didn't know the answer because I was like, you know, I don't know. Because at my lowest of lows and really like when I was suffering the most from different things, it was pretty bad. It, you know, there was times I was very desperate to cling to things or, or whatever, you know, thirsty for whatever. I mean, hell, I'm still waiting on my mom to say she's proud of me. So, uh, you know, <laughs> 37 years old, that ain't there yet. You know, college degrees, all this stuff. It doesn't matter. So I, I guess I can empathize with him. And I think that goes it's just a different flavor of kind of how Kate said, like, everybody's human. At the end of the day, everybody's human. And, you know, we try to throw people in these like serial killer boxes or these, you know, we look at, we just focal point on one part of their life. And I guess I just wanted my point of the stuff I brought to is there's other pieces to the puzzle than the ones that we like to shed light on. True. I agree with that. Any, and, you know, <clears throat> I know we were talking about just all of this nature versus nurture type stuff. And it's interesting that all three of us have kind of a similar, it's like a Venn diagram. We all see the evil in the middle, but off of that, there's different things that we've all talked about that really kind of op opened my eyes and kind of expanded my brain a little bit as to how we diagnose people with certain things or what it entails and how you diagnose through testing and things like that. Like I'm oblivious. I'll be honest. I didn't do no testing except for proficiency tests. I moved out when I was 16. I graduated from online high school and I got a 1.7 GPA because I didn't give a shit. So for me, listening to listening to two people who are very similar, thinking of very similar thoughts, and wanting to be in the psychology field versus, you know, talking to a psychologist, it just all is really fascinating to me. So any, any last things you want to say, Kate? I got nothing. I'm good. Okay. Can you uh, let everybody know what your podcast is, where they can find it? I mean, shameless plug, throw it out there. Yeah, it, it's called Ignorance Was Bliss. I'm at, at IWB Podcast. 
uh, on all of the social medias and IWBpodcast.com. And it started off as a true crime show. It started off as an escape from my children, my husband and my father, who all lived with me at the same time at the end of 2017. And I was like, you all need to leave me alone for just five goddamn minutes. And so I thought I'll start a podcast because they have to be quiet. Yes. Right. And as well, the podcasts that I listened to were primarily true crime. And so I would hear them and they would ask these questions like, what does it mean to be not guilty by reason of insanity? Or what is schizophrenia? Or what was this case like? Or whatever. And sometimes I'd be like, oh, shit, I know the answer. <laughs> but, you know, I'd, ans I'd answer them out loud alone. I've been on disability since 2014 because I broke my back. And so I'm sitting alone in my house six months or a year after they've recorded the episode, answering them anyway. And I was like, maybe I should just start a podcast myself. And so it started off very true crime. Over time, I kind of, I wanted to widen the lens in terms of who I talked to and what I talked to about. And so I still, I would say maybe half of my episodes have to do with true crime podcasters or creators, authors and the like. But other times it's just like, tell me about your show. Tell me about your acting career. Tell me about your hobbies, whatever it is. I just collect stories now. Nice. I love that. I love that. And yeah, I listened, I listened to quite a few. Uh, I liked that you interviewed somebody or talked to someone on your show that was a um a dungeons and dragons uh podcaster because everybody on our show knows my boyfriend's a dungeon master so when i was listening to it i was like oh man he's actually really gonna <laughs> love this guy it's it's just a great way to get to know people i feel yeah it's been super fun that way i've met the coolest people you know i was i was just looking for a hobby and what has happened is i've met all of these people all over the place and you know yeah, gamers. Like I, I'd never played a role playing game in my life before I started. I've played a couple since then, and I'm I wouldn't go so far as to call myself a gamer, you know, capital G. But I've done it a couple <laughs> times, and it's fun. And it's like I never would have ended up here. So right. yeah, it's fun, fun hobby, best ever. All right. Um. So, as you know, we always got to end it on our very real code of the Midwest. And you know what? I got a couple things. Don't talk to strangers, obviously. Don't get weird at grandma's house. Always lock your doors. Bring a casserole to dinner. That's always a solid thing in the Midwest. And have conversations with people that you don't know anything about because we're all human and you might learn something. As always, we'll see you next Tuesday.